everybody. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Uh, you'll hear the show we did tonight and stick around for the after party where we get a little bit heated about live music and also talk some shit about fantasy football. The will they or won't they of Big Ten football has been answered. They will play football this fall. Conference presidents and chancellors on Wednesday vote to start their season the weekend of October 24th. So the question is, what changed? Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Jason Fitz, Sarah Spain. We're presented by Progressive Insurance and all of our guests. We've got some great ones tonight. Going to join us on the Shell Penzo performance line. And Sarah, we've been talking a long time about the Big Ten. And I, I, I'm, we're going to do something on this show over the course, of the course of the next couple hours that isn't done enough. We're going to have an actual back and forth, real nuanced conversation about the way COVID-19 has affected college football, the decisions that are being made. But I'll be honest, I was surprised to see the Big Ten reverse course and decide to play football today. Nothing really surprises me anymore, Fitz, and I don't mean that in a flippant way like 2020, huh? Uh, which which is uh, appropriate too, right? You know, the idea of, of all things being sort of a little off this year. I'm not surprised because of the amount of money at play. And I'm not surprised because of the level of power and influence of the people that were pushing to make this happen. It goes all the way up to the White House. So when you look around and there are other conferences playing, you're feeling the pressure of players and families and other students and the president and, you know, any number of other people who are set to economically or otherwise benefit from a season happening. It is very hard to stand your ground. It is very hard to say that you're prioritizing the what if over the guarantee of money and people patting you on the back for a job well done. The right now of this is that people celebrate getting their football back. We're all excited. Uh, You know, you know me. uh, Michigan is my football team. So we all want to see it. But the right now is much easier to get the publicity and the pats on the back for It's the what happens down the road that is much harder to know and much harder to stand your ground on because a lot of people don't really want to do that long-term, you know, thinking of what it could mean for players, whether that's their ability to make money at a professional level or just their ability to be healthy. Uh, And those what-ifs loom very large over all of these decisions being made in college football. Part of me is kind of cynical, and we'll get straight to some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. So much of what we've seen around the college football landscape over the last several months I believe is about limiting future liability. And uh, it's an important conversation because the whys and hows will be something that eventually, depending on how it plays out, could be something that becomes a court issue where everybody's deposed and has to talk about their medical expertise. I have no problem with the decision to play or not to play if it's based on medical expertise. So when the Big Ten decided not to play, Sarah, I didn't have a problem with it because, frankly, they came out and they didn't tell us much, but they came out and said that they're listening to their medical experts. Now, in the process of some legal filings that had already taken place, we found out that one of those experts uh, that they've leaned on has pointed to myocarditis and an alarmingly high rate of players uh, that have uh, tested 
positive for COVID-19 that also had symptoms of myocarditis. That was part of the conversation. As they now change their course and decide they're going to play, I immediately think about future liability because, as you mentioned, short-term, long-term, long-term, God forbid there be an issue that affects a player's life moving forward or a coach's life moving forward. Now they're, they're going to have to be able to, at some point, sit there and explain why they changed their mind. And I think that opens a whole legal can of worms. And I know a lot of people will talk about waivers and things like that. I've talked to a bunch of legal experts that are far smarter than I am in the college football landscape. Every single one of them has told me things like that would not stand up in court. So there is no future protection that anybody can tell me about for universities that have now opened themselves up, I think, to a different level of liability by deciding that at one point they were not comfortable playing and they now are comfortable playing. God forbid, worst case scenario, I think they've opened themselves. And that's why it's shocking to me. I want you to hear two things and think about the difference in what you're hearing. The first is Kevin Warren, the commissioner for the Big Ten, who today sort of but not really acknowledged that they had failed in previous communications to make people feel like they clearly understood the vote that had been taken and the reasons behind their decision not to play. In addition to sort of kind of a little bit talking about that poor communication, he also talked about the changes that have occurred since that decision in August that led them to the decision today. It really is a blessing to be here today. I'm just proud to be uh, with a group of individuals uh, within the Big Ten. And I uh, seriously understand what makes the Big Ten the Big Ten. We will take a leadership role. We'll put the health and safety of our student-athletes first and foremost. And, and, I, and I'm proud to sit here today to say that we did, that we are so much better and so much more prepared today than we were 43 days ago. I always ask myself, are we better today than we were yesterday And are we better today than we were 43 days ago? And the answer is unequivocally yes. We're better as a conference. We're better as a people. And that's why I'm comfortable to go forward and uh, return to competition. Okay, so lots of vagaries. We're better. I'm proud. We cared. We're good. Here's Heather Dinich, our ESPN College Football Insider, and KJ&Z this morning, giving us a little bit more insight into actually what has changed. I think there will. Um, They're going to have eight games in eight weeks. That's what they're aiming for with a conference championship game on December 19th. And, you know, it's up to the 10 FBS commissioners. This is actually about the playoff ability. This sound should be, hey, guys, this should be the Heather Dinich talking about what changed for the team. Um, There is significant medical information. There's a whole section here called Cardiac Solutions. Um, The testing, the daily testing will begin by September 30th. Uh, The requirements for the testing must be completed and recorded prior to each practice or game. They have a color-coded system here, guys, that we don't have enough time to get into, but it is significantly heavy on the medical information. And look, you can talk about the, the public pressure, the political pressure. Yes, it was a public relations nightmare, but when you see the substantial medical information that they had to consider, this is the biggest difference from when they voted to postpone. Okay, so that transparency is super important, Fitz. So the idea that they are able to have daily testing, rapid testing, that they are able to have that uh, cardiac MRI screening to, to seek out that myocarditis that was an issue. Um, and Dr. Jim Borchers, who's the lead team physician at Ohio State, co-chair of the medical subcommittee for this return to competition, said that they feel like they're able to reduce infectiousness inside practice and game competitions to near 100%. All of that is really important information, and it's the transparency that's necessary in order to at least allow people to think that there are reasons beyond political push, 
beyond uh uh you know money that's that's hanging over your heads like you need to feel like this isn't a money grab I don't know if I'm still convinced, but I at least want those details. And I think, again, Warren failed to do that. And overall, we can't let the conversation be, there's not enough time to get into the specifics. No, those are the specifics that are most important. That's some straight talk, straight talk, wireless, everything for less, only at Walmart. Sarah, I think one of the most important things you just mentioned is that Kevin Warren failed on it again. And that's such an important point on this, because if there's anything that I'm looking for, I think we've put a lot of blame on Kevin Warren when, in fact, presidents and chancellors are the ones that have the vote here. So Kevin Warren didn't vote to do this. But at some point, it is his job when he stands up at a podium as a mouthpiece for the conference to offer some sort of insight. They got blasted the first time around for a lack of transparency. I hope that they continue to get blasted about transparency, even though they've changed course, until they can give us real facts and information on exactly what they've done exactly how they've gotten there and exactly where the guidelines will be moving forward. It's that level of transparency that all of us need to have some level of comfort with the conversation. There's a lot of layers of this. So coming up in about 20 minutes, we're going to bring in a pair of Big Ten players for their reaction to today's news. Got to talk to the guys that are putting themselves at risk and putting themselves on the field. We'll get some player reaction. But before we do that, coming up next, Game 7 gave us all sorts of credit for the Nuggets, but it also begs one significant question. Who's to blame for an epic choke job on the Clippers side. We'll get into it next. If I told you that Denver had won a game seven against the Clippers going into last night, I don't think that that would have caused a lot of shock and awe. But if I'd have told you that the Nuggets were absolutely going to thrash the Clippers, and they would, in Sarah Spain's favorite uh, phrase that I steal all the time, forget how to basketball in the process, I think mm. people would be stunned. But that's where we are today. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz were presented by Progressive Insurance. Quoting home insurance just got easier with Progressive's Home Quote Explorer. Quote and buy all online at Progressive.com. And I was stunned, Sarah. I mean, we weren't on and uh, last night because everybody was listening to a little bit of NBA action. So I'm sitting back. I put my feet up and I'm, I'm ready to watch the Nuggets, a team that has just been fun to root for throughout the process of this offseason since they got to the bubble. And I'm like thinking, you know, they're going to put up a good fight. This will be a good one. And then by the time we got deep into the fourth quarter, I just sat there with my jaw wide open saying, what the hell is happening to the Clippers in front of our very eyes? And it leads to two separate sides of it. You got to praise the Nuggets, but you also got to ask, what happened for the Clippers? Yeah, it was one of those efforts that leaves you sort of shrugging. It's something we've seen from the Rockets this postseason, right? Where you ask, how can you be that close to advancing? How can you be that far into a postseason run? How can you be a professional player paid to do this with pride and self-respect and look like you aren't trying? Look like you've given up. Some of the numbers fits are staggering. Kawhi, one for 11 in the second half. Paul George, one for seven. Paul George had fewer field goals in the entire game last night than the number of first-round picks that the Clippers gave up to acquire him. This was <laughs> just disgusting. And it wasn't even a smothering defense from the Nuggets. There were plenty of open shots. There's the one that started getting circulated by other NBA players commenting on it, no shame whatsoever, throw in heavy shade, where Paul George is wide open in the corner and his three hits the backboard, the side of the backboard. I mean, this was just horrific. And then I'm not leaving Doc out of this because he has now lost three 3-1 series leads in playoffs. He's the only coach to ever blow three 3-1 series leads. And they lost double-digit leads in three straight games. I mean, this was... Epic collapse on every level. 
Yeah, and you're absolutely right, Sarah, when you talk about some of the, the blame that lies at the feet of Doc. And again, there's a good side of this to the Nuggets we'll get to. But Tim Legler, ESPN NBA analyst, was on Greeny earlier with Mike Greenberg talking about, frankly, what the Clippers need to do when they start looking at Doc's job status. I said going into the game last night, if they lose that game, there's a very good chance they make a coaching change. Now, I don't know if, if Doc Rivers is you know, beyond reproach in this league, and that's how people view it, but when you look at the entire body of work with the Clippers and the amount of talent that he has had with that team since he got to Los Angeles, and to never get that team even to a conference final, and I know they've had injuries and whatnot when he was there with Chris Paul and Blake and those guys. I understand that. Bottom line is you've had, you've had a run with as much talent, okay, different, and even different uh, teams put together with different layers of talent to never have done that and to have a team come back from 3-1 that is clearly on paper an inferior team in terms of talent I mean I don't I don't know why if you're Ballmer Steve Ballmer why you aren't significantly looking at that and Sarah Fitz, I think everything's go ahead I was just going to say I mean the fact that we have found so many other fingers uh so many other people to point fingers at with this Clippers team and we have always essentially given Doc a bye tells you how much respect he's earned and how much care people have for him, but we're running out of places to point. I mean, some of the biggest culprits like Chris Paul and Blake Griffin and all the guys we said it was on them that they couldn't advance, they're not there anymore. It's a whole new set of people, and the result is the same. You're absolutely right. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, presented by Progressive Insurance. And you know, not only do we point some finger at, at Doc, but... I really struggle with what to do when analyzing Kawhi in this because so often when you see that sort of a choke job in Game 7, when you see somebody just fall apart, we can excuse it if it's part of the building process, right? Like, hey, he's got to go through this adversity to get to the next level. We, we find a reason for great players to excuse it. I don't know how to process it when you've seen Kawhi be so great so many times and then you see him come into this setting. And it, it, if we hadn't seen his body work, if, if this was just the one game you were watching Kawhi, the conversation today would be the moment was too big for him. I, I, I don't know how to process that given the success he's had in the past versus what we see from him right now. Well, uh, Stephen A. Smith said uh, something similar to what you did, but using uh, slightly different words. Kawhi Leonard. That might be the biggest choke job we've ever seen in NBA history. I mean, it was that bad. It was that bad. We're talking about a two-time MVP. We're talking about a two-time champion who Max Kellerman has bloviated about being the best in the world. And what happens? You're up 3-1 in the second round, not the conference finals, in the second round against Denver, Jamal Murray and Nikolai Jokic, not LeBron James. And in the second round, up 3-1, you blow a 3-1 lead. What do you do? You shoot 6-22 from the field. You shoot 1-11 in the second half. You didn't even get to the free throw line. Just an absolute positive choke job period oh it's just that simple <laughs> uh it's simple right now to be able to identify what happened as a choke job for as great of a player as Kawhi is you cannot be in a closeout game seven and go one for 11 in the second half you can't be a part of a team that you're the leader of that blows a 3-1 lead that blows double digit leads three games in a row that goes out as unceremoniously as they did what's less cut and dried fits is what comes next for the Clippers with Kawhi Leonard who may, because of injury, be on the downslope of his career at only 29. And if he's not a guy that you trust to lead your team in a moment like this, then how do you add, what do you take away, and how do you move forward believing that you're going to compete in a very packed West? 
especially because if not now, then when? I mean, that's the the thing mm-hmm. that like I can't find a way. Now I will give the Clippers at least this tip of the hat. They didn't because of injury and load management. They didn't play a ton of games together during the regular season. So I could see where maybe they never really got their mojo going. But again, that's injury and load management, which comes back to a coaching decision to not give them as much opportunity. So, so many things had to go wrong for a roster this talented to be ousted there. But something did go right, and that's the Nuggets, Sarah. And I want to give them at least Mm -hmm. a little praise. I thought last night on SVP uh, after the game, Tim Legler's breakdown of what the Nuggets did well was one of the better basketball analysis moments I've seen in a long time as he pointed to some of the specifics of what Jokic does, bringing the ball up, and and his decision, his study, his basketball IQ to know when a defender pinches in where to go with it to get the best open look. It was a, a great reminder that the Nuggets are not just winning because they're lucky. They're winning because they are darn good with superstar players that actually know how to make superstar plays in huge moments. It's really a credit to how well they've played. Not to mention the development of Jokic in the quote-unquote hiatus slash essentially offseason. Every team had the opportunity to do something like that. He's a guy who came back and shocked us with his, he was already on to some weight loss and already on to, you know, getting into better shape during the season. But our eyes went, whoa, when we came back from from being gone. And he really dedicated himself. And And this team as much as we will likely probably spend time talking about the Clippers choking more than giving the Nuggets their props, we got a whole nother series now to talk about the Nuggets because they are moving on, because they have been guys who have stepped up in the moment, played their game, and just outworked a Clippers team that, like we said earlier, for whatever reason, looked like they gave up, and that never happened. This team came back from down 3-1 twice. They've had six elimination games in this postseason alone, and they're still alive. Yeah, and the the Clippers have the or sorry the Nuggets have the opportunity to be something that you know we don't talk enough about, which is versatile and varied. They can beat you in a lot of different ways, a lot of different styles. They can play to their opponents however they need to. I, I really think the Nuggets have done something special here, uh, which is part of why, as Jamal Murray reminded all of us, we got to put some respect on their names. It's just the beginning of that process. We're going to keep doing it because it's fun to watch what the Nuggets are doing, but we're going to switch gears again. There has been a lot of talk today about the Big Ten. We're, we're going to get into it, get a little deep dive here on the decision to the, for the Big Ten to play football. What better way to do it than to talk to a couple of guys that are actually going to be on the field playing Big Ten football in just a few weeks. We'll do that next. Big day for college football. The Big Ten <laughs> officially making its return. Uh, we had this pair of guys on the show uh, a while back uh, reacting to to no football, and, and we bring them back to talk about how things have changed. Minnesota Golden Gophers DB Benjamin St. Just, Michigan Wolverines DB Hunter Reynolds. Uh, they organized the group College Athlete Unity to empower college athletes to fight against injustices in their communities and also uh, came together to spearhead the hashtag Big Ten United campaign. Guys, thanks for coming back on with us. It's a pleasure. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having us. Benjamin, let's start with you. Uh, you hear the news that football is going to be played. I assume there's some excitement. What other uh, feelings and or questions did you have as this, uh, this announcement started to ramp up and became a reality? Uh, I would say it was a great feeling. A great feeling to, to, to know that we'll get a chance to compete this year. And uh, also, I was I was I was happy by the fact that the Big Ten took a little bit more time to to weigh in their decision and and gather more information while other conference went out there and played. 
So during that time, the Big Ten was able to make the best rational decision possible because we have a new testing pr- procedures now and we have new rules in place and we know a little bit more about the virus and how to uh, control it. So I feel like th- this time this time around will be uh, way better and I'm very happy about it. Hunter, we've been screaming for transparency information, uh, anything that we can get. How transparent has the, co- the conference been with you guys as players about where they are in the testing protocols? Uh, you know, they released their, their, they released, you know, kind of the procedures on how they were going to go about things this fall. And while I haven't fully read it in its entirety yet, just because of class and practice, uh, you know, I feel pretty confident in what they've released. I feel confident, like Ben said, you know, they took their time, really came to make an informed decision and, you know, didn't rush anything. I think a lot of times in this world, you know, we kind of want instant gratification with things. And while it was, you know, frustrating to play, at the same time, you kind of just take a step back and realize that, you know, while we could have been playing this weekend like some other conferences, at least at the end of the day, we know that the Big Ten uh, was looking out for our best interest by, you know, kind of taking things a little slower. Miss uh, Michigan's Hunter Reynolds and Minnesota's Benjamin St. Juice with us here on the Shell Pencil Performance Line on Spain and Fitz. Benjamin, how in the loop were you guys on the conversations over the last month or so? Um, were you being asked questions or being involved in the in the proceedings? Um, I would say we, we got a lot more information in the first part. So we knew a little bit uh, in advance uh, when we are going to have a date to come back. We knew a little bit in advance um, that if we are going to have a season or not. Obviously, when it comes to medical stuff and all that stuff, um, we could we – could, we could try to get as much information possible, but that's very confidential. That's between, you know, the commissioner, the NCAA, and the medical staff and all that. But I would say this time around, uh, since they took the time to make the most professional, rational decision uh, possible, we knew a little bit that maybe the season had a chance to come back. We knew a little bit the dates. And when it happened, you know, it wasn't like a surprise, kind of like when the season got canceled the first time around. Hunter, I know you guys obviously been working together as a conference, but have you had conferences? Have you have conversations with players in other conferences about how they felt if they are playing? Yeah, we've had those conversations. Um, you know, the guys that are playing have said that you know the big thing for them is just remaining diligent and you know really keeping separate from other people, making sure that uh, they don't have the huge outbreaks on their teams because we all realize as players that. And any second, you know, a huge outbreak could happen, which could cost us our season. So I think the biggest thing I've taken away from just speaking with other players is, you know, and especially Pac-12 players too, is, you know, don't take anything for granted and, uh, you know, play every play like it could be your last because in a situation like we have right now, you know, you never, you never know. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking to two happy guys uh, who uh, put a lot of work into trying to get uh, college football to be played in the Big Ten this year, but also had a lot of demands. Benjamin St. Juice of Minnesota, Hunter Reynolds of Michigan. Uh, Benjamin, there were a lot of demands in that initial proposal put forth. There was a lot of uh, expectation from the, the higher ups. Do you feel like everything was met? Are there any things that were being pushed for that you're still not uh, satisfied in the response from the schools or from the conference? No, I think pretty much, I mean, we got pretty much everything we asked for in that demand. And I'm like, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm surprised about it. I'm happy at the same time. I mean, 
uh, I, the first thing we wanted was the safety. We wanted to make sure that, like, if we start the season at the same time as other conference, we don't get shut down. Because if we get shut down while starting the season, then there's no turning back. So now that we're able to have a new test testing procedure that we're going to test every day, and every team's going to do it, and the, the coaches and the, the colleges will follow follow through the procedure also, that's great. Uh, we were able to protect the, uh, the, the year for every player. So this year will be extra year for everyone. That's great. Players that wanted to hop out had a free chance to hop out. That's great. Also, every player had their right uh, amount of resources, stipend, and and, uh, and and college check to make sure that if we do play this season, then we get the right resources and uh, accommodation possible. So most of those things were all checked out, and, and and I'm very happy about it that we took the time to to make sure that those demands were were, were met. That being said, guys, we've reacted so much to Ed Orgeron coming out and saying, hey, basically the whole LSU team has COVID-19. Like, Hunter, when you hear things like that, is there some level for you that, that has some you know, caution going into this season about playing in an environment where your opponent may, may be COVID-19 positive? Yeah, you know, there's definitely a thought in the back of your head just knowing that there could be – someone you're playing against who is positive, but at the same time, you know, that's where our original proposal came in, kind of where we wanted everything to be uniform and mandated amongst the conference because, like you said, if one team, you know, has players that uh, are positive, I think the rule is that if 5% of your team is positive for the test, then you have to shut down as a program. So, you know, a situation like that could pretty much lead to the season becoming derailed in that sense. So I really think it is one on each individual team that really police themselves, but then it's also on the conference as a whole to make sure that uh, there's nothing like that that occurs. Two guys you've been really impressed with throughout this process, uh, Benjamin St. Juice, who plays for the Gophers, and Hunter Reynolds for the Wolverines here on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, uh, putting a lot of work behind the scenes, showing us the power and the influence of the players when they want to uh, make some demands and make sure that they have a voice that's heard. Uh, there's a lot of excitement around this, also trepidation. What does it really mean for a season that's looking so different than the usual uh, Benjamin, what kind of conversations are you guys having about how many games you might play, what that means for the playoffs, and how to sort of judge yourselves and your performances in in such an unusual season? Oh, those are those are, those are great questions that we will will be reaching out for answers soon. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I heard a lot of options. You know, eight, nine, ten games, and how we're going to fit in. How the Big Ten is going to fit in the AP poll and the, the rankings and playoffs and all that stuff. I think they'll figure it out. They'll give us the best schedule possible, and they'll give us the most, the mo- like the most amount of games that we can play. So we should have answers shortly. Benjamin, I got to ask you real quick. Last year, I traveled with Game Day. Had the chance to go up there when we were there for the first time ever in Minnesota. I'll never forget in the snow watching those kids just line up for the opportunity to be around the game. That that may not be the case this year. So how do you guys keep momentum on campus with all the other concerns going? When you're a football program like Minnesota that got so much momentum, how do you keep it? How do we keep it? We got to keep it inside the team, you know. Like we create that momentum, we create the hype. So it comes from the team, it comes from the coaches, the players, and all that stuff. So once we keep the hype in the team, then we can project it to the campus, to the students, and other people. So we'll we'll be all right. Yeah, I know Hunter. Where that's going to come from? Your insane head coach. Uh, I'm curious. Has he been? Uh, has he been already laying out just insane guidelines to make sure that none of you guys are off at, at the frat houses causing trouble and making yourselves unavailable for the weekend? Um, I don't know about insane guidelines. You know, it's kind of kind of the responsibility of each player to really make sure that they're 
doing what they need to do because, you know, I don't think there's a way to 100% police the players, but, you know, if you tell players that they have to miss 21 days if they test positive, I think that's really enough incentive or incentive to, you know, do the right thing, not be out and about, and yeah. make sure, you know, that you're available to play. I'm just picturing, I, I'm a big uh, Harbaugh supporter of his idea of having his kids have two Halloween costumes so they can go out twice and they have to sprint between houses so they have time to make uh, double the rounds for double the candy. He just seems like a very intense person who might have uh, a, a new and unusual ways to make sure he's tracking his guys and, and has them in the right spot at the right time. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming on the show um, and, and continue to, to use your voices in the right way. Uh, good luck with the season. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hunter Reynolds, Benjamin St. Juiced, two guys uh, coming back around on Spain and Fitz here as the Big Ten announces they will be playing this season. Spain and Fitz brought to you by Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Uh, I hope Hunter didn't think I was insulting his man Harbaugh. You know you know, I love his weirdness, Fitz. That's my, that's, that's my weird guy. I'm, I'm into yeah, the You're weirdness. a Michigan fan, too. Like, so I you're, am. You're all in on this. I am. Yeah. Do you see how professional I was there? I didn't even mention that. You did. Uh, coming up next, <laughs> we've got a stunning end to a playoff game. We'll get to that. Also, the great story behind the shot. If you tuned into the pre-party slash after party slash the entire pod, I guess, from yesterday since our show got bumped, you would have heard our WNBA playoff preview with Ari Ivory uh, talking about all the teams, the setup, uh, first and second round, single elimination, what happens after that. All that good stuff. Still worth listening to. Two games last night got us underway, but plenty of WNBA playoffs to go. Uh, you can grab that podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts uh, and and get all of your uh, WNBA prep, the, sto- the scores, the stars, the stats, etc. And one of those fits, we, we won't mention uh, the Chicago Sky losing to the Sun, uh, even though I just did. Uh, we can move on to the other game, which featured a finish <laughs> that sounded like this. Diggins with double, tosses to the corner, a three, is good, at the buzzer, Shea Petty buries a three against the team that cut her, and Phoenix is moving on. That was a crazy finish, and Fitz, it was made even crazier by what I learned about the woman who hit that shot, Shea Petty, via Lindsay Gibbs, who, by the way, is a great follow on Twitter, at Linz with a Z Sports. But she had done a thread about Shea Petty's crazy story uh, even before. And uh, this kind of winning shot caps off an incredible journey. I will quickly relay it to you. So she was drafted 23rd overall into the WNBA in 2012, but cut from camp that year. Year later, invited to Mystics training camp, cut before the season started. Six years later, after she'd been playing in Europe, she gets invited to the Mystics camp, cut before the season starts. A couple players from that Mystics team go to Eurobasket, so she's signed on as a replacement player, makes her WNBA debut at age 30. But for that month as a replacement player, mostly practice garbage time for the Mystics. Those two players come back from Eurobasket, she's cut again. Her next opportunity comes with the Mystics as an assistant coach. She wins the WNBA championship as a coach, dream come true. She figures she's kind of on to that part of her career. She gets a call a month ago, and uh, the coach then says, hey, you want to join for the summer? She thought he meant as a coach. He meant one of the players in the wobble, right? So this was last year that she goes in there, and she ends up. So now this, 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 she gets cut, plays the team that cut her and hits the game-winning three to advance them to the next round of the playoffs. 
Someone who didn't debut till 30, who got cut multiple times, who spent seven years away from the WNBA, and now here she is. Insane. Yeah, and you know what hits me when you talk about that, Sarah, is like, find the stories. Because so much of the conversation, this is a little what we talked about yesterday on the podcast. People should go listen to it. But when you're looking at the WNBA, if you don't know it and you haven't watched it, instead of dismissing it, find the stories. Go out, watch it. And look at the the drive and the passion and and the way that everybody attacks the game. When you find the stories and you realize how many easy-to-root-for women there are playing in the WNBA, man, it it makes it actually hard to find a favorite team because there are a lot of individual players I find myself wanting to Mm -hmm. root for. This is what makes the NBA great, and it's part of the WNBA great, and it's part of why I, frankly, have learned to love to watch it. Part of that became my friendship with Cheney, and then all of a sudden I found myself watching it all the time, and then you find out there's... A lot of Chinese. There are a lot of women just easy to root for in the WNBA. Well, and if you're into the idea of players who can do it all, and if you're into at all the idea of people who serve as actual role models, you've got you know people with masters, people who are playing after having just had twins a couple months ago, people who are on the front lines of activism, women who are a, a step ahead of almost every other league in terms of using their platform. Uh, just incredible stories that come out of there and uh, super fun to watch as well. Thursday, tomorrow, are the next two games. So the second round is also single elimination. The stakes remain very high. Phoenix and Minnesota, Connecticut and L.A. Uh, so that'll be fun to watch as well. Don't forget, speaking of uh, things you got to check out, uh, this Wright Thompson podcast, incredible, Bloodlines. It's a three-parter written and told by the god, ESPN's Wright Thompson, examining the world of thoroughbred horse racing. Download, subscribe, and review review. Review is the word. Bloodlines, available wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Uh, I try not to miss anything Wright Thompson works on. He's fantastic. So make sure you check that out. Um, In addition to all the WNBA stuff we're trying to keep up with, and by the way, Fitz, have you also had the feeling this week more so than any other that it is impossible to have enough eyeballs? Because NHL playoffs, NBA playoffs, WNBA playoffs, NFL, college football, uh, soccer, NWSL is back, uh, PGA, Tennis, what am I missing? It's all the things. MLS. Yeah, and I, I, like I've finally given up. I've been the person for all these years is like I'm not going to have multiple TVs in my living room. Now I've just, I've given up. Uh, I, I'm not multi-TV guy. I have to. Like, this is I, what happens too can't. when you live separately from your wife. You just evolve into no. bachelor mode. <laughs> That is that is a fair point. Like, what else am I doing other than watching 52 TVs at once? That is a fair point. I will give you that. But it, it just makes it impossible to keep up with. And to that end, we're going to add an extra element to it with NCAA basketball. Mm-hmm. As much as we're talking about the Big Ten, the NCAA basketball season is going to get underway. It looks like the start date is set for November 25th. It's interesting that they've changed some of the rules. They've reduced games from 31 to 27. And they've reduced the number of games teams must finish to be eligible from the tournament from 25 to 13, according to some reports, Mm. which is a reminder that they are protecting themselves day one for how can we make sure that this year we get some sort of tournament? Because let's be real, college basketball makes their money on March Madness. They need March Madness. They need a massive tournament to make up for some of the funds they lost last year. And despite the sort of floated idea of a potential everybody gets into the tournament, plan. Uh, It sounds like they're still planning for the regular 68 teams, 14 sites in March and April. Uh, Worth noting, though, when we talked about this previously on the show, they have filed a trademark for Battle in the Bubble uh, for hats, T-shirts, all sorts of other merchandise and the ability to use that. And that gives me the feeling, Fitz, that they are very much prepared to have to do a bubble format for the tournament. um, And they're getting out ahead of it to make sure that they're the ones that makes money off of it. 
Yeah, which is the amazing part about the end of it. Look, I know everybody's tired. Like College fans never want to hear about the monetary aspect of it, and former college players want to talk about it all the time. There's a middle ground on it, but you got to admit, I mean, you can't look at college basketball and say, okay, so... You know, you've got all these kids that are going to be out there and they're putting, you know, battle in the bubble as a trademark that they can go out and profit a ton of money off of. I mean, it's dirty. I don't blame them. It's dirty, but uh, like, go for it. Make all that cash you can. Well, and it's worth noting that, you know, all these professional leagues, there are players associations where votes are taken for whether they want to play, where they want to play, how it's going to look. And despite those two young men that we just talked to that I think very well represented a really smart and informed and active uh, student body in terms of NCAA athletics, their recommendations and demands are not actual unionized and protected rights, right? They are putting things out there and hoping that those needs are met in order to be able to play, but they don't have to sign off on anything. They don't have to agree to anything. Collegiate sports will move on as those conferences and presidents and chancellors see fit, and it's either hop on board or opt out and miss out. And and that is something you need to remember with this college basketball stuff, too, and will be interesting to watch as they sort of put together what it looks like, how they keep people safe, uh, how it's going to be different this year. Um, like I said, if they're planning on those regular sites, is that something that people are going to say uh, flies in this, especially once it gets to wintertime? Yeah, season started is far different than a season finished in all of this, so we'll just appreciate what we get while we get it. Speaking of that, Season starting for the Big Ten coming up, but how will it end? And will it end with everyone getting a fair shot at the college football playoff? What should their requirements be? And how is it going to look as different conferences start at different times? We'll get into all the nitty gritty of that next on Spain and Fitz. The college football wolf pack has grown by one. As the Big Ten has decided to join in on the fun and they're going to start playing football Later in August, or October, it's not August right now. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Sarah, the Big Ten has decided they're going to play starting October 24th, according to multiple reports. It looks like we're going to get uh, eight games in a schedule that's going to give every team four home, four away. They're still working out some of the details of exactly plays out but we do know at this point that the Big Ten is going to try and play football so that leads to a lot of questions because getting in by October 24th will still give them with eight games in the minds of many a chance to compete for the playoffs so it looks like instead of just getting the ACC the Big 12 and the SEC playing we're now going to add the Big Ten and that gives us four out of the power five that are willing to put their players out there and try and make something happen. Yeah, it certainly changes things because we all know and have known since the beginning of these discussions that Ohio State is the biggest player here because of the expectations. This is a team that very much is expected to compete for uh, the football championship, college football championship. And when you when you have a team like that in the mix of this conference, it does affect your expectations and it will influence just how malleable the situation is in terms of how many games you have to play, what date you have to start by, how many people are eligible. And you said something in the pre-show that's really interesting. These college football playoff committees are told to consider injuries. Was a team great and lost a quarterback for two games, and those two games shouldn't be considered as as, as strongly if that quarterback returns and is available. What about COVID-related uh quote-unquote, injuries or games missed. Um, you, you, you have to consider you know, those as well, and it's such a small sample size. This is going to be a really tough job for them. 
Absolutely. I mean, the, the college football playoff committee has a nearly impossible job this year. The question is, will the Big Ten be allowed to participate? That is something Heather Dinich addressed on uh, K, uh, sorry, Keyshawn, J. Will, and Z, uh, Zubin. I'm going to learn how to speak before just the end of the show. KJ and segment. Z is what I go with. It's just a well, lot easier. You know, it rolls right off the tongue. The full, I was trying to give him the full name. Keyshawn, <laughs> J. Will, Zubin that you can listen to from 6 to 10 a.m. every morning on ESPN Radio. This is what Heather said about the Big Ten and whether they'll be allowed to participate in the college football playoff. I think there will. Um, they're going to have eight games in eight weeks. That's what they're aiming for with a conference championship game on December 19th. And, you know, it's up to the 10 FBS commissioners and Notre Dame Athletic Director Jack Swarbrick as to whether or not they would let the Big Ten in, but all indications are that they certainly would. Um, but I'll also point out there's no guarantee that anybody's going to get all of their games in, and the other leagues might wind up just playing eight as well because of the coronavirus pandemic. And no guarantees comes, of anything. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and like you said, I mean, uh, when I went down and did the mock uh, committee exercise down in Dallas a couple of years ago, you go through and you take an old year and you, you decide on who you're going to go through and you do the debates just like the 13-person panel does. And I was really stunned when we sat there and had some conversations about the year that we were mocking as they were coming in and saying, okay, well, remember, this quarterback couldn't play then or this game took place home and away. That makes a difference. All of these things that the committee is allowed to respect as part of the reason for an outcome. So how does COVID play into it? I mean, could you be looking at a situation where a team ravaged by COVID injury, uh, COVID uh, restrictions, all of a sudden finds themselves losing a game because they didn't have all the players and they find themselves ahead in the mind of the committee? I mean, this is going to drive college football fans absolutely insane as they try and figure it out. But I don't think that there's any clear blueprint for the committee on how they're going to figure out who belongs in a playoff. Well, Fitz, also worth considering is that this is if it goes anything like a regular season, something where throughout the year you will have college football rankings. And that will tell teams where they sit in terms of that committee's impression of them. Is it possible that they will be influenced by their standing and their potential to make it into the college football playoff to not accurately report their statistics, to not hold out important players who would be otherwise unavailable, right? This is very different then an NBA playoffs where you know it's not subjective. You you win the games, you move on. Now there's still a chance that you would try to you know sneak someone in and, and make them available because you know what they can add to your team. But when there is a true subjective voting going on and you're aware of what they take into account, how does that affect you know just how c- considerate these these coaches might be in in terms of you know who they play, who they sit, how long those quarantines last, and otherwise. Because I think that's a big question we've had throughout this, is where are the independent parties that are making sure that what's done behind the scenes is what's best for the player's health and what's most accurate to the protocols that have been insisted upon versus, no, oh, we don't feel like reporting this this week how many people have it or who they were or whether they're recovered yet. And, and before anybody rolls their eyes, again, Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, Sarah Spain, Jason. Rolls Fitz, their eyes? Uh, I uh, mean... What have people in sports ever not taken the chance to fib a little bit or cheat a little bit? If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying is a saying for a reason. And you are right. And college football fans are all convinced that their program is the one that doesn't do that. Right. And everybody else does every single time. <laughs> but the funniest thing to me is that we got a clear indication of this earlier in the pandemic when it was originally UCLA and then Pac-12 players 
all said that they wanted third parties to come in because they mm-hmm. didn't necessarily trust the process of the coaching staffs. They tried to watch that, walk that back, but it's still out there. That was their initial reaction. And, and I'm looking at it even right now, Sarah, because we haven't heard what the schedule is going to look like. So if you're the Big Ten and you know that you've got particularly with Ohio State, but you also have Wisconsin, you have two teams that are in the top five in the AP preseason poll. Do you stack their schedules to make it, you know, give them the best opportunity to impress the committee? Or do you make their schedules really easy because you want to give them the clearest Mm. path? I mean, I'm looking at Clemson right now saying I've seen the rest of the ACC. Clemson's going to whoop up on everybody. So now you can just take that one and you can put it in the playoff, in my mind, likely if things go normal. So now there's only three spots left. Do you make do you make the resume great or do you make the path easy? I don't know that there's a definitive answer, but I do think that they're going to sit down and think about that. They didn't battle this hard to play regular season Big Ten football. They battled this hard partially because they want to get one of their teams in the national championship game. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as we try to consider all the different factors that led to this battle and this decision, I meant to ask uh, the two players that we had on earlier from Michigan and Minnesota if they felt like pawns at all in some sort of, you know, political gamesmanship, because I think it's very clear we're looking at the Big Ten right in the middle of all these swing states, the government offering up money to allow them to do rapid testing, to allow them to do cardiac testing, Uh, not the same offer going to the Pac-12, places where there is not that swing state uh, uh, question mark of of where the vote will go. And if I'm a student athlete, I don't want to be a part of what could be something that's done for for political gain. My safety should not be on the line. And when you look at the Pac-12, not only do they have the questions about COVID, but a number of other things. And actually, Heather Dinich was on KJ&Z this morning talking about why it doesn't feel like they're going to fall into line the way the Big Ten has. It's not just the fires, it's the public health um, restrictions because of the coronavirus pandemic that remain in the state of California and Oregon. So you're literally talking about half their league. Four of the schools in California, two in Oregon, couldn't go out and practice and, and hit each other right now if they wanted to. So their tests, much like the Big Ten, are going to be on every single campus by the end of this month. They need a time period to train people on how to use it in the testing protocol. But until they have the clearance in those states from public health experts to say, you can practice, those presidents aren't even going to sit back down at a table for another vote. But the minute they do, a source has told me that the earliest target date is mid-November to late November. I mean, what what are they playing for that late? I mean, you come in mid-November, late November, you're going to, if everybody else from the Power Five is playing, then you're the one conference that's just sitting around in January still playing? Money, 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 uh, money. Listen, you can make a whole lot of money even if you're not in the playoff because, and, and I hate to be, you know me, Fitz. I try to be full of sunshine and cinnamon, but uh, the cynicism around college sports and around the decision-making for coronavirus, understanding what we do, which is so little about long-term effects on these athletes, as Dominique Foxworth said today, I would ask for long-term, lifelong health insurance to see just how good they feel about what my body's going to look like years from now when I can no longer make them any money. Oh, that would be a remarkable actual test of how confident they are. Don't forget, speaking of remarkable, listen to ESPN Audio at Home with their smart speaker, ESPN Audio at Home. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz Vans. Drive a Mercedes-Benz van. Find out how far an extra mile really goes from customization and service to financial assistance. Mercedes-Benz Vans are ready for anything. I'm ready for this. Next up, Sarah's got an NBA thought experiment, a conversation you need to hear about the NBA. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. So Fitz, I got into it on the old Twitter last night. 
Can't say I'm surprised. My attempts at nuanced and meaningful engagement uh, continue to be thwarted by people who don't care to read or perhaps can't. Uh, and somebody who resembled so much a cat typing across a keyboard by walking across it uh, that uh, that that comparison was made. Uh, I don't know that this will go any better. Uh, R.I.P. my menchies. But I just thought about this. As, as, as we were watching, the second of the big three in the NBA in the Clippers get bounced from the bubble, I was remembering the conversations we had on this show, on Around the Horn, on Highly Questionable months ago before the bubble format was approved, and it just had me asking questions of other NBA fans. Now, let me preface this before I even ask this question by saying the things that I am not saying. To remove the ability for all the people in my mentions and all the people listening to argue a straw man that does not exist. I am not saying there's an asterisk on this NBA season. I'm offering up the question, do you think there's one? I'm not saying any team had any different opportunity than any other or that any team didn't have an equally fair shot at winning. I'm not saying any of the teams that advanced deserved it any less. I'm not rooting for any of the teams that got bounced. I'm not bummed or salty about the Bulls. I'm not part of an ESPN NBA conspiracy to try to have the larger markets advance. I'm not saying an asterisk, if there was one, means that games have not been super enjoyable or that whoever wins is not a true champion. Here's the question that I did ask. Not taking anything away from Miami or Boston or Denver or any other team that's still in it. Just interested in the opinion. Before the final decision to finish the NBA season and the bubble was made, we asked if they do play, what kind of playoff surprises might cause us to add an asterisk to the year and think that it was maybe less legitimate than a regular season's playoff competition. And to a man, most of the people on this show, on Around the Horn, on Highly Questionable, said something like, well, you know, if like the Clippers or the Bucks or the Lakers don't make it to the conference finals or the finals, it'll feel weird. It'll feel like there's a reason for that. Those teams have been so dominant. The Bucks loss was one of the most unlikely playoff upsets in recent history, according to the numbers, even though many said that the Heat were a team that could take them out in the regular season. The Nuggets, literally the first te- team in NBA history to come back from down 3-1 twice against a Clippers team that many will point to previous historical upsets and say this is no surprise either. Knowing all that and asking yourself if in May I had told you the Nuggets would be in the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers and it would be Heat Celtics in the East, would you have said then, without the hindsight of now, that there is any sort of asterisk or that this feels different than how things would have gone had there been no hiatus? Yeah, I would have. You know, and and Sarah, I think what's amazing is I hadn't really thought about it. You know, there's this moment when we started talking about this in general, and I've been a part of so many of those conversations. What would it take to have an asterisk? And at the, at the time, I sort of laughed about it and said, okay, whatever LeBron does will decide how we treat this 100% you know? is how a lot of people are treating it, yeah. And, and the funny thing is that's like, it's a joke, but it is also sort of real on how we all treat it. And again, I'm not taking anything away from the Nuggets, but I do think that there's a, a real and fair conversation to have about what a, a break meant and what the gap meant in the performance for certain teams. The Bucks just looked so different when they came back. And that doesn't mean that the Heat wouldn't have beaten them anyway. It just means that the Bucks look different. And we don't know what context to assign that because we've never seen anything like what we saw this year. So I think it is fair to turn around and say, okay, 
this year is going to to crown a rightful and deserving champion because you could make the argument that winning in the bubble takes even more skill and ability to handle adversity. Mm -hmm. It takes even more focus. So I could turn around and say all of those things to give extra credit to whoever eventually wins, but at the same time then acknowledge I'm not sure as much as I want to come out immediately say, blow up this team and destroy that team. This didn't work. That didn't work. I don't know that we can do that because the Mm -hmm. particular situation was so different this year. I think we have to step back and actually be patient. Yeah, and and that second part's really interesting, too, because I do think reactions to how things went in the bubble this year will will be tempered by the question marks around just how legitimate it felt for some of these players, whether that's the mental health of the bubble, whether that's how things are different without a home court or the, the referees being influenced by home crowds. Um, whether that's the hiatus that some people were able to treat like a second offseason and take massive steps forward in their game that maybe wouldn't be the same for a veteran who's already reached the peak of their abilities and is now more at a plateau of greatness as opposed to a younger a younger team or a younger player. Again, I think the problem partly fits is that an asterisk is... There's so much there's so much weight around that term, but uh, how you actually want to describe what it means is very subjective, right? For some people, it means it's not good enough, or it doesn't count, or it's not the same. For me, it's just a reminder that things were quite different than an average season. It doesn't take away, and to your point, whatever team wins had to be incredibly durable. They had to play more games in a shorter time span than in previous years, right? Those gaps between series and games was less in the bubble than with the travel and everything else. They had to be mentally tough. They had to be committed to their team and be willing to to show up and not opt out and have the health to do so. They had to refrain from inviting women to their room and getting bounced from the bubble before their team did, right? (laughs) It took a lot. It took a lot. And so whoever wins is overly deserving of all the credit. I just thought it was interesting to look back at what we said then and how we would look at this without any of the context we've gotten en route to the result that we have and ask, would we be seeing this differently if, if you said to someone, the Bucks, who are on pace to be a record-breaking team, lost in the second round? You know, the, the Clippers collapsed to a team in the Nuggets that's so fun to watch and deserves all the credit, but is not who we would have expected in the West Finals. And again, it's not taking away anything. It's simply saying that once you get buried in all of the context of what you're watching, you sometimes forget a lot of the questions that we had about just what it would mean to try to finish a season months later in a bubble with no travel and no home court and some of the guys opting out and guys signed to different teams. I just think it's interesting to think about, even though everybody hates me for even asking the question. (laughs) <laughs> but but this is part of what's like become strange in, in our culture today, not just in sports talk, but in all talk. I mean, everything has to be, I'm right, you're wrong, and you must see it my way. When I think that there are a lot of issues, and this is one of them, that, that can have both sides. Like, I can admit that what the Nuggets have done has been absolutely incredible. And to come back from a 3-1 to deficit twice in the playoffs is just, in one playoff, is just absolutely insane. And I can love watching all of it. And then I can at the same time say, but... This has been a very different year, and but doesn't always necessarily mean a negative. Like It's okay to look at both sides and, and acquiesce and acknowledge the greatness of what the Nuggets are doing, while at the same time acknowledging the difficulties that, that this entire scenario may have presented for the Clippers. Both can be true, and, and you can still have that conversation. We've become so hot-take cultured on every opinion that sometimes it's just impossible to have real conversations. Yeah, and, and I mean, specifically to the Nuggets, Jokic doesn't have 
months to get in better shape and show up and shock us by looking like Porzingis unless there's that hiatus. There are players that aren't signed to the Lakers that have played big roles. There are other players that opted out that might change the chemistry in ways that we don't imagine from the outside, but that were really important to those teams. Again, it doesn't take away. In fact, it adds in some ways to the teams who have been able to consistently win, especially a team like Miami that has not gotten enough credit for being a team that we kind of were like, Jimmy Butler's going to Miami, must be going for the culture and the nightclubs and the life and everything else, not because they have a shot to win. And yet here they are. Anyway, I'm scared of my Menchies. Coming up, a guy who only has good Menchies. It's Nick Friedel, friend of the show, coming up next. Oh, it was a disgusting loss from the Clippers last night. We're going to get into it. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guests join us on the Shell Penzoil Performance Line. Don't forget that the NBA playoffs are on ESPN Radio. Tune in tomorrow night as Kemba Walker and the Celtics battle the heat presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Friend of the show, ESPN NBA reporter Nick Friedel. Hi, friend. Ciao, friend. Oh, you nailed it. Hi, friend. You nailed it. On the first try. Nick Friedel, actually also a friend of the person who always says, Ha friend, Kylie, who inspired Ha friend, which is why I knew he would come in strong with his very first effort. Friedel, what's up? <laughs> I'm just trying to get over the fact that the Clippers collapse like everybody else. I know. Else. I really, I really, it's wild. Uh, we, we were just asking this question, I, I'm curious about your opinion. If back in May... As the NBA was trying to figure out, should we go into a bubble? Should we finish the season? It's going to be months later. It's going to be weird. And you had been told that the Clippers and the Bucks were eliminated. And the Nuggets were in the West. The Heat were in the East Finals. Would you have said, this feels like something's off? This isn't probably going to look like a regular off season or, or postseason? Or am I uh, attaching too much to the, the, uh, the, the I guess, the, whatever the reverse of hindsight is, our ability months ago to predict who should be in it or not? The Nuggets being where they are, Sarah Spain, is so stunning that my brain still hasn't fully comprehended (laughs) and wrapped around exactly what went down. Because to go down, and this is why I give the Nuggets so much credit. How many years, guys, do we see a team go down 3-1 and go, all right, we're done. (laughs) We are out of here. It's over. We're going to Cancun. We're going wherever we're going. Especially in the bubble. We are not. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we are, we are out of we are out of this situation for the Denver Nuggets to come back twice now from three one in a bubble in the middle of a pandemic is incredible. So hats off to them. I I, I cannot believe that they've done it. The, the Heat, uh, being the Heat, hasn't surprised me that much. But the Nuggets doing what they've done in the moment is really, really impressive. Nick Friedel, hi, friend. Um, I'm gonna <laughs> hi, ask friend. You, well, I'll get in on this. Uh, <laughs> he's so, so much better than you, Fitz. That's embarrassing. Uh, that, at everything. That's just part of what he's <laughs> – that's part of his nature. Uh, so what did we all miss on the Nuggets? <sighs> Fitz, I don't think people understood, even knowing how good Nikola Jokic was pre-bubble, how he could take over the way he has at times. And Jamal Murray has been awesome. And uh, he got plenty of shine during that uh, Utah series going back and forth with Donovan Mitchell. But 
for Jokic to do what he's been doing lately and for him to continue to make everybody else around him more confident and better in their own games. And then to see the way Michael Malone has motivated that group in the moment, that's that's the, the... the shocking part of Denver is that uh, they have really unearthed themselves on a, a national stage. Because, guys, uh, the quick part about the Nuggets is uh, having gone there and seen games over the last few years, I, I don't even think most of the people in the city were into that team. They had this whole issue with games uh, being carried on, on their network and cable systems not picking it up. There just wasn't a lot of interest in that group. So for that group, to take everything that's happened and continue to play at a high level and, and with Jokic leading the way the way he has over the last few games, uh, again, it's just a huge credit to what they've done. Nick Friedel, ESPN NBA reporter with us here on Spain and Fitz on the Shell Penzel performance line. So Charles Barkley gives the Nuggets a 0% chance to beat the Clippers. Uh, <laughs> He should have left maybe a little wiggle room, even just a point oh one percent. So here we are. What is your percentage for them to upset the Lakers now? Uh, you, you can't give them zero, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> you can't give them zero. I mean, I love Charles Barkley as much as anybody, but zero after coming back 3-1 twice, especially against a Clippers team with all that talent. Because Keyshawn there, doubled I down this say, morning. He said 0% yeah. again. I'm like, nope, do we not learn, gentlemen? <laughs> There's a reason why the Chuckster has lost a lot of money in Vegas. Like, you know? uh, but uh, as far as this series, I, I'm not giving him any more than a, a 10% chance. I just don't think it's that high because in the end, LeBron knows exactly what's on the line. LeBron knows that this is a legacy series of uh, huge proportions for him because he's a step away from a fourth title. And in the end, I expect LeBron to just dominate and get Anthony Davis rolling early. They've had a lot of success against Denver uh, earlier this season. I know Denver's got a ton of momentum. Good for them. Uh, I think the Lakers are just a better team, and I'm pinning the reason why I think they're going to advance uh, right on LeBron James and, and how dominant he still can be. Really quick question to follow up then. You think all those issues early on in the bubble from the Lakers were just the typical LeBron hadn't hit the easy button yet? Yes. Uh, I right. think they've gotten out of their malaise and they're, they're in their rhythm now. Talking to Nick Friedel, uh, obviously on High Friend, as we uh, friend. Uh, get a little bit of a fun NBA action in here. So, was Bam Adebayo's block the best block of the year, the best block of the decade, or the best block of all time? <laughs> oh, Fitz, I would say the best block of the year because I'm counting in in this at least the same decade that LeBron block in Game mm. Seven of the Finals. I mean, mm. Bam's block was incredible. <laughs> I'm sitting in front of my TV like everybody else going, did he just do that? And then you've got the <laughs> magic tweet that takes it to a whole different place. But when he did it, you think that is an awesome, awesome moment. But to me, LeBron in Game 7 of the Finals doing what he did, that's just a little bit better. Yeah, it is It is a remarkable moment, though, to have something like that in Game 1 of a series. I miss Jimmy. 
uh, Jimmy, I thought, was going to Miami for the beaches and the babes and the no luxury tax or in state income tax or whatever the heck they have down there that everyone always talks about. Not that they were going to be a team that would compete. And here they are in the East Finals having upset an incredible Bucks team, looking great against a very deep Celtics team. What's the ceiling for the Heat, and how are you reacting to what I think is a surprising run from them this early in the construction of this team? Sarah, they absolutely can win this series. Uh, I think the ceiling is uh, whatever they decide it to be at this point. I, I would not pick them. I didn't pick them before this series, even though I thought they beat Milwaukee, just because I think Boston still has more shot creators than Miami does, but they are so tough. Uh, they play so hard, and they were made for the bubble. Udonis Haslam, who's been down there in Miami forever, made this point weeks ago. He's dead on. This is Pat Riley's vision for the Heat 25 years in the making. This team, this moment, because it's a focus on basketball, working hard, and staying mentally prepared for whatever comes your way. Eric Spolstra is an awesome coach. Jimmy wants this moment to prove to everybody that didn't think he could be the face of a title team that this is his time. Uh, and anything is possible for Miami right now. In a regular world, do I think they could make it this far? No. But we're not in a regular world, uh, and this is not a regular team. So I think mm. all the stars have aligned for them to make this push that they're making. Sounds like uh, uh, Friedel's in on my thought experiment, Fitz. Well, you know, he's smarter than I am. He's not so using the word, but he's uh, he's in. He's in it. <laughs> oh, Nikki, uh, don't put that on your uh, Twitter anywhere or, or else RIP uh, your mentions. Thanks for the uh, visit, friend, and look forward to the rest of the uh, playoffs with you. Bye, friends. Bye, friend. Bye, friend. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Did, so where did this uh, look? I know we have NBA playoffs to talk about, but you've got a lot of joy for counting crows that I don't know I knew existed, Sarah. Really? I, this oh. I didn't know. Oh, well, I love the Counting Crows, and August and Everything After is my Desert Island album, and two of my guests on, on uh, That's What She Said, my podcast, uh, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts, uh, have also listed it as their Desert Island album, Taryn Killam, who we're both big fans of, former SNL uh, actor, and Aaron Rodgers, also uh, his Desert Island album, August and Everything After. Hmm. Yeah, have I ever told you my Aaron Rodgers? Or, well, that's for the podcast. Stick around. Okay, for the stick podcast, around for the podcast. The we can do some more Aaron County Crows talk too. Because uh, if you are not a fan, because you only listen to like the things that hit the radio, the Mister Joneses, the uh, Big Yellow Taxis, the uh, Accidentally in Loves, I would encourage you to do some deep dives. If you need some, I will put together a Spotify playlist for you. Some of the most beautiful songwriting, and if you see them live and you appreciate the music, they often do some really cool things where they'll change the bridge or they'll incorporate lyrics from one song into the next and go back and forth. And so a lot of people will say, oh, I didn't like it. It didn't sound like the record. But if you appreciate the band and music, in fact, you go to the concerts and your mind is blown and you're in just a, a happy state of joy throughout. That's why I, that's why I haven't really been a Counting Crows person because I went to see them years and years and years ago and the, just as all of that was becoming super famous and they did Mr. Jones as like this weird deep ballad thing and I was like, I, no, I'm out on this. Like, so, you know. This it's, coming it's, from the band leader who was in charge of creating a new and unique concert experience for years with the band Perry and you're yeah, like, no, 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 stick to, stick to the album, guys. I didn't pay a, to see this musicianship. 
Hey, there's a famous story where Martina McBride years ago brought one of her band members up with a with a recording of the show from that night and said, hey, you played a different solo. And he's like, yeah, I was just having a little fun. And she was like, yeah, but you never know what somebody's favorite part of a record is. So you replicate the record when you play live. That's, Ooh, you know, I'm going to replicate the record guy. Oh, I, dis- I, I disagree. You can listen to the record over and over a million times. The live version is where the magic happens. The joy where you discover something new. There's a Ray LaMontagne song that I had heard a million times, and then he sang it differently at the most recent time I heard him. And I was like, holy cow, what is this song? I realized it was one that had slipped beneath my notice for so long because he just hit the words a little differently and it opened me up to its magic. Fitz, this is something we're going to argue about till the end of time. Well, I think there's a place for both. It just maybe threw me off. Maybe I'll re-explore it. Our, our oh. buddy Mike Foss, also a big County Crows fan, always trying to get me into it. All right, Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, obviously. Oh, by the way, quick, uh, quick little note here, the Dodgers have clinched a playoff spot, which the entire Dodger fan base united screams, so what? Because let's be real, they're tired of that. Like, if it's not a World Series, like, they they don't want to hear about it. Uh, But they are headed to the postseason for the eighth straight year. It's the third longest streak in Major League uh, Baseball history, by far the longest active streak. So congrats to the Dodgers, but Dodgers fans don't want to hear any of it. Now, you mentioned with Friedel for High Friend, we talked a little bit about it, but I thought that that interesting, there was an interesting moment last night where I was watching the Heat Celtics series trying to figure out who the Heat are because they were so streaky in that game and it just felt like at times the Heat looked like the most dominant thing in the world and then they forgot how to basketball and then they kicked it back up. So I, I thought it was really interesting for the Heat to go out and get such a big statement and the opportunity to win a game where at best they were inconsistent several times during the course of the game. Big win for Miami. I was going to say, yeah, you don't want to see that if you're the Celtics because uh, they are a young team. They are a team that's still figuring out uh, how to how to win in the playoffs and, and who to go to at different times. And they still came out with a W despite being a little inconsistent. They are super hungry. They are fearless. And they're super young in a way that I think there's no narratives around it. There's no um, expectation. And because Spolstra is such a strong coach and is vastly underrated because of uh, having you know had such a superstar cast for that first go-round of championships, um, he's able to really put them in positions to succeed, and they listen, and they work. And, um, man, it's a really fun team to watch. And at first I thought, you know, is this just a team that matches up really well with the Bucks? And then when they face a team like the Celtics, who have tons of weapons to go to, on a given night, if Brown is off, you look to Walker. If not, you look to Tatum. Like, And there's, and there's other guys down the line who can get hot um, to see – that Bam comes up with the big block, Jimmy Butler comes up with the big score. Um, they can go to a number of guys, and then you know somebody like Tyler Hero, who's way ahead of schedule for the impact that he's having. Uh, this is a team that, like Nick said, absolutely can win this series, and is a lot more fun to watch this early in their creation than I think probably anyone could have thought, even members of the own team. Yeah, and that's that's I think one of the most interesting parts. You mentioned Spolster a little bit, and we've become so. I think used to the the ever changing revolving door that is NBA coaches. You can be hot one year and just non existent the next. It feels like he's just carved out his niche of greatness, and I do mean greatness. There, I think he's a spectacular head coach, and and it just he constantly runs it back and does his job at an incredibly high level. And I don't know that he gets enough love for it. So you know, when when Friedel says that this is Pat Riley's vision, twenty five years in the making, I'm excited to see where it goes. Not just now, but remembering that so much of what we're seeing in this playoff run, I think, can actually bridge its way over to the next season that's going to come right up on us. There's an opportunity for for the Heat to put a few things together here and really make a statement in another run for the organization. 
Well, and Pat Riley, I mean, what what can you say about someone who's been able to, for such a long time, have a team that's contending, right? They have some off years, but they're never an embarrassment, and it always feels like a destination that people want to go to. And you could say that it's the location or the market or, or whatever, but there's plenty of great places, New York and Chicago among them, that are considered the best markets to play in and a great place to get endorsements and be part of a franchise that has a storied history. And they have not been able to put together winning teams. And you look at some of the pieces here and you say to yourself, did you expect Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero and Jay Crowder and uh, Jimmy Butler, who is a great player, but at one point was the last player taken in the first round of the draft, wasn't even starting on a Bulls team before working his way up to enough minutes to prove himself to be a max player. These are not the blue bloods that you expect to put together like, say, the Clippers are, right? And instead, they just come out and they work you. And it's... it's um, I, I don't think you can undersell the importance of Spolstra, especially when you look at... The teams that are succeeding, Mike Malone is a great coach. There are questions about Coach Bud in Milwaukee. There are, there are, there are questions about how D'Antoni puts together a roster and uses it. Now, there's there's a lot of, of faith in him and what he does with the weapons that he has, but I, have you, there's a lot of questions about Doc Rivers for as much as we like him as a person and what he stands for. To blow three 3-1 leads in the postseason, that's never been done before. You look at Spolstra and the steadying presence for these young guys, that's a huge part of why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, and as you say that, Sarah, I'm also struck by, I'll, I'll add that I think one of the bigger surprises of the NBA season has been Frank Vogel and the job that he's done with the Lakers mm-hmm. team that had a lot of, uh, the, the one question we you all had right. was uh, was depth and then his ability to coach. And, uh, you know, frankly, he's crushed it at every turn. And, and personality so I'm, I'm, manage. Yeah, every coach uh, which, that's been with LeBron has gotten pooped on at some point as the guy who's, who's responsible for any number of things, that he's escaped that entirely. Yeah, and so you've got Vogel, you've got Spolstra, you've got Brad Stevens. I mean, you start looking across, uh, and, and you already gave uh, Malone credit. So, like, you start looking across the board, it feels like the coach that can not only manage the personalities but also get each guy to, to understand their role and the, the, get the team to play together is the coach that's winning in the bubble. I, I'm all for it, and I think it's a, a surprising development that we have and, and maybe a sign of something that we should look for as other teams like the Nets have made their hires. Like, as, as teams look moving forward, Sarah, I think coaching is a bigger element than most teams give it credit for oh i don't know if they don't give it enough credit but i do think this is revealing some some people who have maybe some weaknesses in their in their playoff series coaching ability and i also think well, you probably underestimate how important the mental health side and bringing together guys side is when you're in the bubble all right so fitz uh i'm glad that we have this after party time because I frankly, there's been two sort of revelations for me when it comes to you and your musical background. And let me preface this by saying, I give you all the credit in the world for your incredible music career, whether that's Juilliard, the boy band, the barbershop quartet, the band Perry. Uh, Did I miss any iterations in there of Fitz as musician? Uh, a lot of touring, uh, you know, uh, humble brag. I just got some of my uh, golden platinum record uh, plaques. Nice. So those are going yeah, up Yeah, playing on the wall. for other, other bands and performers yeah. and groups yeah. and, and on different records. But it's been good. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I can have You're, a good run and still have terrible musical taste. That Yes, what? we can agree on that. Go ahead. I didn't say anything yet. Uh, that, But I do appreciate that you knew that that was one of those. No offense, but <laughs> uh, like, let me start by just telling you all the ways that you are amazing and I respect you. But... 
uh, when we first got together, for the first time Spain and Fitz happened, um, we we sent out a list of a ton of music that we liked, like uh, probably somewhere between 30 to 50 songs each to our producers that we wanted to hear for rejoins coming back from break that would just make us excited or put us in a good mood or give us good energy. And I was just surprised how few of yours went beyond what hovers around, you know, the Billboard Top 100. It was a lot of hits that you hear on the radio. It was a lot of pop songs. It was a lot of um, just the standard music that um, the average basic bitch is listening to in her Wrangler driving down the street with her, you know, you know her her slushy and uh, going going to high school, going to college maybe. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. It was fine music. I was just expecting as a musician, as a serious musician, to come in with some deep cuts and some surprises. Uh, so that was the first surprising moment. The second was we just on the show talked about how I love the Counting Crows for mixing up their live performances, uh, sometimes moving away from the recorded uh, album version of a song and then coming back, and how it's just beautiful to me as someone who's a really big fan. And you argued on behalf of just playing the album version at live shows. My mind has been blown twice now, Fitz. Explain yourself. Well, there's so I always look at it a couple ways. Uh, number one, and I said this on air, but it is sort of a famous Nashville story where Martina McBride uh, got mad at a musician for changing the solo on something. And I'll always look at like If I Die Young was the biggest hit for the band Perry. And uh, it's it, it's a beautiful fiddle solo. Great. It's awesome. There are nights where you're like, God, I just want to mix this up. But it's also, you know, Dan Huff, who's a, a really famous producer in Nashville, said a long time ago that you should always try and play a solo that somebody can sing. And if you're playing a solo that somebody can sing along with, you've really hit the right notes the right way. And so I always told myself in that moment, while I may be bored, and that might be the 300th time I've played that solo that year, somebody's at their first concert seeing it for the first time. So my obligation in my mind was always to deliver them sort of the music that they expected but with a lot of heartfelt now that doesn't mean that we didn't change arrangements like expanding little areas or giving a little room to breathe changing some tempos or everything but we never in my in my career touring I can't remember an artist I played for that had a massive hit that we really changed the massive hit. Now, right. Well, the massive a, hit is different, though. Yeah. I'll give you a massive hit. And I, I think it totally makes sense that a that a massive hit, you don't want to mess with it too much. People want to hear it and sing along and love it. I'm talking deep cuts, other songs, even B-sides, like things that people will be amazed and interested in how different it sounds and how cool it is to hear it differently. Well, and, and I will say, like, I, you're right. The list I gave us, I forgot. Yeah. Uh, Kimberly Perry, the lead singer of the band Perry, used to always call me a pop tart. Like, just that was her <laughs> common nickname for me. Oh, that's going to stick. Oh, yeah. No, the, 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 <laughs> amount of, the amount of pop that I listen to, and that's true. But there is also another, like, my favorite artist right now is James Arthur. Like, and, and James Arthur is, you know, a British singer songwriter. Like, I have this obsession with Brit- British singer songwriters that have cool voices that sing really dark stuff. And that's, okay. that's usually like what I write and what I like is usually really dark if I'm just sitting around listening. But then when it comes to doing shows and things like that, I'm always big on like, I love boy bands and I I love Bruno Mars. And I love like, like I remember Levitar going after uh, one of the Bruno Mars songs that had won the Grammy for Song of the Year. (laughs) And and I voted for it that year because to me it was the catchiest thing that was made that year. Like I voted for Taylor Swift uh, a couple of times for Grammys because I look at it and I'm like, man, if you made the most- Tay-Tay is very deserving. I I mean, my God, yeah. But if you make like- Which one was- was it though? Was Bruno Mars just the way you are? Uh, no, God, it wasn't even that good. It was um, that's what I like. No, mm, I gotta remember. I think uh, I it was remember. that's what I like. Probably, yeah. Lucky for you, that's what. I, yeah, because I because I, 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 I remember kind of agreeing with him. 
that oh, yeah. it, that it wasn't a great like as far as songwriting goes it it, it i was not particularly impressed it wasn't yeah. my jam I mean, lyrics are such a, that's such a natural yeah. thing, like to become obsessed with lyrics. And I love that. Like in the music I write, you know, I always go back, like I grew up as a little kid, a Bon Jovi fan, you know that. But like I was reading an interview years ago with John Bon Jovi and he said that his, he felt their responsibility in the late 80s was to write a six minute movie. So they wanted to like back then songs were longer. So they wanted to write like a, a movie where you got, went through the whole thing. And I, I love doing that. Like I love taking somebody on a journey if I'm writing something yeah. and if I'm listening to something heartfelt, that's where I go a hundred times out of a hundred. But when it comes to like what I want to consume for party stuff, like I'm just, or, or for my day in and day out, like to get energy. Yeah. I'm, I'm vapid. Whew, I am shallow yeah. music. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite uh, songs. That's a story is uh, Bruce Springsteen's NYC serenade. It just like takes you on a, a beautiful journey and it's just it's it's just such a lovely song. But you're right. A lot of the songs that I would want to put on that list uh, wouldn't work for like a rejoin into our show. <laughs> you know, dark and depressing is not the energy we're going for most of the time. Sometimes, but not all the time. Um, we can we can have disagreements about our music. We agree on so many things that you being a pop tart is fine. And I do love me some pop music sometimes. Uh, I was uh, I just you know I'm learning things about you is, is all I'm saying. Just just learning. <laughs> I, I, I have Don't layers. love you any less. Just uh, adding layers. some layers to the onion. Um, uh, speaking of no love lost, I beat the shit out of that Canadian dad in our fantasy football league. Holy cow. He was the only person that came for me during the tr- the draft chat. Like, I don't think anyone else had looked at the schedule yet to see who was playing whom. He had already looked it up. He knew we were playing. And midway through the draft, we're all, you know, taking, you know, sh- you know barbs were being thrown. But he was the only one that was like, Spain, I'm taking you out. You're dead. And his team name is Murray. And so I feel great that he uh, was, you know, empowered and, and, and inspired to bring Stu Gotts along with them. But I think the result <laughs> is one we could expect when it comes to a uh, bare knuckles brawl between me and Stu Gotts or anyone who is acting uh, in his place. I beat the shit out of him and I felt great about it. Well, and I don't blame you, by the way, for feeling spectacular about that. You know, for me, I was a little nervous because there are certain, you know, there are certain guys, you know, that or girls that, you know, in this league that are going to uh, they're going to make sure that you are reminded of how, <laughs> you know, how good they are. And I, I had that week one because I had a matchup with Mike A in week one. And so, Ooh. you know, Mike A is, uh, you know, he's he's at times. He can be loud, and he came in before the Monday night game, and he, he let me know that he was hopeful that A.J. Brown, who I had playing on Monday night, uh, would have a case of diarrhea and not play the game at all. That was his <laughs> quote to me in studio. So it was important that I get that week one win. Like, I, you know, there are very few people that I look at and say, I got to get that one. Mike A. never would have forgiven me. So the fact that I beat Mike A. is is sort of a statement. I feel really good. Like, I, I feel pretty confident. I'm playing in three different leagues at this point. I won two of my three games, and the nice. one that I lost, I lost by less than a point. So I, I lost like, you know, pretty by good. just a couple points in my other league, which was disappointing. But I've got time. The Dick Butkas, as they are named, because of a famous moment when a politician introduced... <laughs> Dick Butkus, but called him Dick Butka. Uh, clearly had mistaken <laughs> him with Mike Ditka and created the ultimate Chicago football player, Dick Butka. Uh, that team will bounce back. Meanwhile, my ek, my deck, had some success in week one. Uh, and by some success, I mean had the most points of anybody in the league for week one. Came out swinging, looking good. Uh, I forget what your team name is. Uh, it's I'm Schwitzing. 
Oh, like, right. Okay. Yeah, Shout out to Chris Mitchell, right? I think Chris Mitchell is the one who came up with that. Um, that I don't know. I I say schwitzing all the time. Up, I don't like, think, did you come up with it on your own separately? Wow. Great minds. Great I minds. Think I, I think I did. I but like I say I'm, I'm schwitzing all the time. So yeah, I went, you are schwitzing. Uh, mm-hmm. Much appreciated. Uh, do we want to take any shots at anyone for next week? Just a, a preemptive strike before the season begins. I will be taking on uh, the Shea Pepler slash Jordan Cornette, the the married couple, uh, Team Leonard Cornette, which is a funny name, to be fair. Um, I think I might try to you know get them fighting as a married couple and see if it can just create some fissures in the team before before Thursday night. Which I uh, genuinely appreciate from you. I'm taking on Murray this week. Murray! So I'm hopeful that I can uh, continue it. But we've really glossed over the other trash talking. There was a lot of trash talking in our draft by one yeah. particular person mm-hmm. involved with the team known as Punt, yep. Pass, and Kick. Uh, uh, punt, that pass, would be, and Kick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, this is my first experience uh, <laughs> with, the, with, the, with the child. And, and, with you the know, demon I child, spawn but. of Jeff Passan. I mean, the demon spawn of Jeff Passon was going at you pretty. Like, I finally had to, I finally had to, you know, chime in at, at some point and just stand up and defend because, I mean, he was he was coming hard for for a kid, and then I, I had to also remind myself that anything I would write in that chat, I needed to be prepared for Jeff Passon to read. So I cleaned right, some of it right. up and I kept it. As First of all, don't worry about Jeff Passon reading anything. He looks like a twelve year old, but he uh, also talks like a twelve year old. So he uh, he's not someone you need to worry about you know, professionalism or otherwise. And his son, uh, I have to admit, and I, I hope that neither of the Passons ever listened to this, uh, has an elevated level of trash talk for however old he is, like 12 or whatever. Like, I was actually pretty impressed. He had some good comebacks. He really set himself up for failure when he was like, I'm going to be doing homework. And we were like, ha, 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 you're a child. But other than that, <laughs> he really, he really, I have to say, and I hate to say it, represented himself well. Thankfully, punt, pass, and kick, those two guys also lost week one, which I feel good about. We do have one nice advantage this week in the world of trash talking, and that is that Childish Hambino and Super <laughs> Cam, that bro, are taking on each other. In other words, Cheney and Golik Jr. are facing each other yeah. in our league, which is going to be spectacular. Show on it's, show it's, crime. Yeah. It's sort of win-win there. Like I, I guess, you know, at this point, Jr. is 1-0 and and Cheney is 0-1. So I guess... I'm rooting for Janae so that they just sort of take each other out. Yeah, take each other out. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to put you on the spot. I know that you consider yourself, you know, a a a childlike forty-two year old. Is it forty-two now? Forty-three. 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 You just sounded so old because both of those names are references, and you appear to have missed both. So uh, childish. No, no, no. Childish Hambino. Right. I'm, I am aware of both references, but the goal is to say the references as uncomfortably as possible. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's I love um, to do this because it just pisses Mike off. Every time I'm with Junior, right. if I can use something like I like to use the phrase drip as painfully as possible <laughs> just so that Mike constantly like I on the Monday night football thing I did last week with Field Yates, I kept calling uh, I kept calling the outfit that Cam Newton was wearing banana drip. And I said it as right. old and I white like as possible. Drip. I like yeah, banana, banana drip. drip. I just want to make sure that you knew the reference of Super Cam that bro. Yeah. Yeah, and good. also childish Shambino. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I'm you good. just like to sound old and white. Yeah. That's basically right. the goal. No cap. No cap. <laughs> uh, that's the one I just learned. Uh, on that note, we both embarrassed ourselves, and uh, it's time to wrap this up. Uh, see you tomorrow? Yeah. No. We know what? There's no Spain. There's no Spain. We'll figure it out if we're going to have a little party of our own, little party pod. We'll do a party pod. Sounds like we'll a good idea. We'll figure it out. All right. 
Thanks for listening, y'all.